0: Hebrews chapter 13 is where we are, verses 5 and 6 is where we'll pick up. Well, um, I do my preaching schedules about four, five, six months out in advance, and so in the summer I, I had uh, articulated kind of, you know, we're going to, right here at this window of time, we're kind of finishing our look at Habakkuk, and we have two weeks right around Thanksgiving, and uh, we're going into the Christmas season, and so we're going to talk about generosity. And I had the sermons locked and loaded, ready to go. Um, you know, it's December. That's also good for churches, right? We're supposed to talk about year-end giving. Um, so here's I, my plug on year giving. If you want to give more, could you give more? That's, that's it. There's the whole plug from King's Chapel. Um, we would love for you to give more. But I, I found myself, um, in, in thinking about generosity, though, um, uh, uh, kind of wandering over to another house in the neighborhood of generosity called Contentment. Um, they live on the same cul-de-sac. Their kids play together and they like talking about the weather, generosity and contentment. They're deeply connected. And Perhaps it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit or maybe it was just a conviction of my own need. My own sense of where my heart has been and this obsession with money and the, the longing and desire, how unsettled I often am about life. I found myself wandering, wanting to wander over to the house of contentment for a little bit and sit and chat and see if I might learn some things where I might have my own soul calmed and quieted like the psalmist in Psalm 131 who says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. My thoughts are too not, not too great for me. And so as we go into Thanksgiving and the holiday season, I would like to, for us to have calmed and quieted souls that are content in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, hear God's word. Just reading two verses this morning. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not hear, fear what can man do to me. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God may stand forever. Contentment. Uh, what does it mean? Well, really quickly, let's give a definition of it. Uh, it the old Puritan writer, Jer- Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, gave it to us and helps us understand what contentment is fairly well. Here's the definition. should be up on the screen for you there. It's, he says this, the inward condition, contentment is the inward condition of the soul, a quiet frame of mind which surrenders to and delights in God's wise disposal in every condition. We know what contentment is. It is that sense that your soul is at rest, that while there may be all kinds of things going on around you, you are at rest and at peace inside. It is not a fatalism. It is not a up, uh, whatever, it, how do we say it? It is what it is, that's fatalism. That's how we say it today. But it's a quiet trust that the Lord's will be done, and that is enough for me. That is what your soul says. It's Thanksgiving week, and so we got to talk about the pilgrims, right? Um, Some of you have. uh your kids have been in little little shows about the pilgrims. Now, if you were to actually read about the first first Thanksgiving, we've put this very nice, beautiful, romantic spin on it. But if you read Nathan Philbrick's book, Mayflower, which I highly suggest you do if you enjoy history, you'll see that there's actually lots of reasons that the uh, pilgrims had for not giving thanks. There was nothing very sentimental about the first Thanksgiving. Uh, There was warfare around them, there was bloodshed, it was horribly cold, and there was rampant disease. And yet in all this they found a ways to say thanks to the Lord and so we asked how, how in the world could they and how in the world could I get to that place that it, though there, there's a life and a storm going on around me and difficulty that I would be at the place of, of soul rest and contentment before the Lord you see in their weakness and frailty they could give thanks and it was because that they had the strength of contentment in the Lord, and there is incredible power in contentment it makes you a person who's very free. That the things of life don't just kind of throw you all over the place and make you like somebody with a, who's like a chicken with your head cut off running all over the place. It makes you calmed and quieted. And so where do we look? Where can you find this kind of contentment? Well, you know, it doesn't take any great genius to look at Hebrews 13, 15, verse 5 and 6 and tell you what the points are this morning. And you know what they are. That's the difficulty for us this morning, isn't it? Here's the first point. Contentment can't be found in the love of money. And you go, uh-oh. oh we're gonna talk about this. It takes no, no genius to tell you that this is what we need to face. It, it's, it's, the issue. This is, it's the issue of actually just kind of hearing the things that we already know, to hear the truth about ourselves. Think of Jack Nicholson in The, in the Few Good Men who looked at us and says, you can't handle the truth. And that's the difficulty for us this morning. I I could preach a sermon on any kind of very divisive prophetic kind of issue this morning. I could preach on race or I could preach on the, the conflicts in Ukraine and Palestine and give great, great understandings and applications of just war theory. But I think the prophetic voice that we would most hate in this room, if we're honest, that we would most hate because of its timing of this week and the conviction that we feel. You would hate the very words that come out of my house and you, mouth you will hate this sermon because it reminds us of what we already know. That money can't solve your problems. We, but we love money. Money, we love money. We love it so much. We love what it can buy us. We love the security it gives. We love the significance that we feel when we have it. We love the dopamine hit that it gives us when we hit the words buy now. And then we go, yes, and I watch the tracking. I'm convinced actually that, that deep down, that while we love money, we hate that we love it so much because it leaves us anxious and worried and distressed. Contentment cannot be found in the love of money. We love it though. And yet we hate our love of it. Because deep down we know that our love of money and our consumption, our constant consumption, that leaves us anxious and depressed in life. The author of Hebrews begins by saying, okay, don't love money, but instead be content. And I think he actually compares what is a contented life he quotes Psalm 118 and says, you're going to look to God. That's where you're going to get to continued life. That's point two. You'll get to that in a second. You know that's coming. But then he says, because I have God, I do not have to fear. And I think that is connected for a reason. Because a love of money leads to a fearful life. Because as Proverbs says, money just seems to evaporate out of our bank account. And we all know this from this year. If you were somebody who didn't have anything involved in any investments, but you had a million dollars in the bank, because of inflation, that million dollars evaporated in the fact that it's not worth a million dollars like it was last year. It literally just kind of flees like butterflies and moths out of our closets. And even though we live in one of the most prosperous cultures in the world, we are a people who are addled by anxiety and particular over our financial worlds. Financial fear is a reality that many of us struggle with. The Northwestern Mutual did a study called the Northwestern Planning and Progress Study of 2016. Sounds like a riveting reading, doesn't it? And they found that 85% of the respondents felt some form of acute financial anxiety. They also found out that financial anxiety negatively affects your health and your home. In fact, finances are one of the leading causes for marital issues and divorce The American Psychological Association did a survey in 2015 and they found that money and the stresses around it uh, are one of the leading causes, is the leading cause of stress among Americans. The leading cause. Death is less stressful to us than money we stress out by all sorts of things when it comes to our finances, don't we? Am I gonna outlive my retirement savings? Am I gonna have retirement savings? Can I afford healthcare? We stress about college tuition. Are my kids gonna be able to go to college? Should my kids go to college? We stress about what will happen if our spouse dies. Will we have enough? And all of our financial fears are telling us something, and we must listen to them. They're telling us something, and they're telling us something about our own hearts and what we cling to and what we trust in. You see, you can trace your fear on a pretty straight line that runs from your fears about money to what your heart believes you most need. In other words, our worries reveal what deep down we really want and what we really need in order for us to experience what we view to be the good life. Example, so if you think the good life, give an example of, the kind of our fears and our hearts. If you think the good life is found in having the respect of other people, then reputation will be what matters to you most. And then what will you begin to fear? Well, you'll fear rejection. You'll crave approval. You will make compromises in order to get that approval and to make a name for yourself and you'll get very, very angry if anybody ever, 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 ever slanders you. Well, what do all of our financial fears tell us about our hearts? We believe that we need money to feel two things satisfied and secure. And who doesn't want to feel satisfied and secure? Satisfied and secure, that sounds kind of like, well, contentment. And what Paul is saying here, I'm sorry, what the the writer of Hebrews is saying is that if we look to money for our contentment, that's sand on the seashore that we're building our life upon. What do we do with all our? What, what do we do with this? And so, our, our, we, we, what do we do with our, all of our anxiety about money? Well, we go. Well, you know, we're a people of we're very simple minds. We like to try things over and over and over again before we learn our lessons. And so we go. I'm anxious about money, and so, uh, what's my answer? Oh, I know what the answer is. Get more of it. That'll work. Wasn't it Rockefeller who said, "How much is enough?" His answer was just a little bit more. And the anthem of a discontented culture is that we need more. And our cultural moment makes us exponentially more difficult. Now listen, the human heart has always gone to more. But now that itch just gets stretched because we live in a world of what we'll call hyper-reality. Mark Sayers, in his book, uh, in Trouble with, The Trouble with Paradise, in a subtitle, "Following Jesus in a World of Plastic Promises," talks about this idea of hyperreality. What he calls hyperreality, and you guys are well familiar with hyperreality. Hyperreality is the portrayal of life that exceeds what life really is like. So, for example, let's say you're in line at the grocery store and you see a magazine there, and it has a picture of, of a beautiful woman, and she is portrayed in all of her beauty. But what you don't see behind that is the photo shoot. You don't see the care man just getting the right lens and the perfect lighting. You don't see the makeup artist spending hours on her face and on her body. You don't see the photo editing doctoring the picture so they can present this woman in perfection in all the products that she is trying to sell you. What you see is a presentation that exceeds the reality that we all live in. It goes beyond reality, hyper-reality. And the world is constantly selling us an image of what life should look like all the exotic places you should travel to, right? Let me tell you, I've got bad news for you. You're never gonna be a yacht in a yacht on the Caribbean. And if you are, half of us are gonna be throwing up sick it's not that great, and yet it is presented as this is the life. Or we, we look at all of our romantic experiences you'll have both in singleness or maybe in marriage as well. All the marble and the granite countertops that will cover your house from floor to ceiling. Such that Our homes become so heavy, they literally sink into the ground. And it is all presenting to us this hyper real vision of life that overinflates and extends our expectations and scratches that itch of our fallen proclivity to discontentment. To always believe that we don't have enough, and so we look at our life, our normal life with our just one, just one counter has granite countercops. and we go, ha, it's so boring and mundane, it's so lesser, and, and we we are we're fearful that we're behind, that we're not living up to the expectations, that we don't have enough. In fact, th- that, what is the fear that we most often talked about now? FOMO, the fear of missing out i've missed out on something and so in many ways what the point of the book, that book of the mark sayer's book is saying is this is it stop chasing the joneses and why should you stop chasing the joneses and he's saying because the joneses aren't real so stop chasing a ghost but our longing for more which promises to give us peace actually ends up you know what it makes us do it makes us more stressed out Marshaler says this in his book, and I have the the full quote up here for you. Hyperreality is an I-will-be-happy-when existence. No matter how affluent or comfortable our lives become, we will always be looking for something better. In many ways, this I-will-be-happy-when culture becomes the ultimate addiction culture as people enter the addictive downward spiral, always needing a bigger hit to satisfy the growing cravings and becoming less free ultimately in the process. In other words, I'll be happy when I get married, when I have children, when I have that job, when I make more money, when I have more in savings, when I have that object, when we get that vacation experience. But we discover that no matter how affluent no matter how big your investments are, how comfortable life gets, the happiness that we long for is oh so out of reach. There is actually something we are always longing for more. And so we need a bigger and bigger and better dopamine hit. I'm actually convinced that some of you order and purchase things on Amazon just so you can see the tracking because you you always have to have something you're looking forward to. And even though you have all intention of sending those things right back, And we become obsessed with this because it's actually doing something neurochemically for us to say buy now and to wait for those objects. And what is all this consumerism leading to? More debt leads to acquiring more possessions that break that we have to take care of and we have to buy more storage facilities to store them in. And we all end up, we just buy these things and they end up sitting on the shelves waiting to be upgraded by next year's newest edition. And our hyper real world has exploded with social media and our constant scrolling through Amazon and the Target app and all it has done is make us more anxious. That's been the result. The studies are in. It's killing us. And it is not that the wealthy are exempt from this. In fact, the wealthy are more stressed out The stats show that the more you have, the more insecure you feel because you're afraid of losing what you already have. And the longing for more money to quell our inner thirst is like drinking seawater, hoping that you will become less thirsty. It just kills you from the inside out. And so maybe the notorious B.I.G. had it all correct. Mo' money, mo' problems. Now listen, here's the thing. The last 10 minutes, I have not said anything you didn't already know. You could go to any, any preacher anywhere when he talks about, about money, it's gonna go something like I just said. They're gonna use maybe different quotes or read different books, but we know this. We know that security and peace is not found in more money or more stuff. We know money can't touch the deep things of life. And you know how we know this? Because no one goes to a funeral and says, well, at least he had a good life insurance package. That's never the words we give to people to comfort them in the midst of life. You never tell someone who's lost a child and it, or a child who's gone wayward and go, well, uh, at least how's, how's your 401k going? That's never the, the the thing that we know will actually comfort the souls of the people with whom we're engaging with, because we know money and stuff can't touch those things. Because we know they don't touch our hearts and our souls. Proverbs eleven verse four says this: "Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death." So not only do those things comfort us at the funerals and in the moments of hardship, as most preachers will tell you, you can't take the money with you, but even more importantly, they're not be able to take it into the grave is they don't do anything for you when you stand before the judgment seat of God. They do jack for you. the scriptures teach, and so does John Keating and the Dead Poets Society, that we are all destined to be food for worms. That's wonderful. (laughs) And when death comes, your finances and your stuff will not stand. They'll just kind of rot away just with you. And so we know money can't provide the, the comfort and the longing, the peace that we have, we long for. It can't provide us peace with God. It can't stand with us. It can't make us right with God. It cannot pre- prepare you for judgment and for death. It can't even prepare you for life's hardships. Money can't give you the confidence that you need to face any of the trials that you're gonna face in life. And you know What? Maybe our unallayed anxieties and fears, maybe God's giving these things to us as, an, as a gift. Our constant worry about money that's driving us and making us anxious and stressed out, maybe God, that's the nervous system, the spiritual nervous system from God saying, hey, 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 there's something more. There's something more. It's his mercy when he tells the prodigal to smell themselves, Right? The prodigal goes, do you smell pigs? Oh, no, that's me. And so it is when we smell our stress and our anxiety. Oh, that's, that anxiety I smell, that's my anxiety. And we go looking for something else, something that will truly provide us contentment. And you know the answer. You know the answer that I'm supposed to give. You know the answer that the rest of the passage says it clearly. But the fact is, this is how we know that, our, that, we are, that money and consumption is an addiction. Because addicts know the problem, and they keep running after it. And so we know that more money and more consumption is not going to satisfy our souls. And we know that we're supposed to run to God. And we don't do it. And that tells us how lost we are. So what does pride provide contentment? You know the answer, point two. Contentment is found in the ever-present help of the Lord. But let's pause. Because we've known the answers from the beginning of the sermon. And so we long and we need the Spirit of God, not just to make us convicted for a few seconds, to make us feel guilty and go, yes, yes, I know. I need to spend less, I need to save more, I I need to be less obsessed with money. No. Let's pause and ask the Spirit of God to actually transform us. Heavenly Father, you know my heart clings to money, that I I love it. I love it so much that I'm obsessed with how my investments are doing. I spend entirely way too much time looking at it. And Lord, my soul rests when I'm with you. And I know this. And yet, Lord, day in and day out, I run to the seawater. And so, Lord, as we as we talk about the very things that we already know, would you come and change us? Like now, on the spot. Spirit of the living God fall fresh on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are made by God and we are made for God, and to find we are made to find our satisfaction our joy and our security in him. And this is why when Jesus comes in John chapter six, verse 35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That there is a food that perishes. The food that hyper reality is selling and creating is perpetual discontent and leading you down the anxious path of consumerism and financial woes. That's a bread that perishes and it rots. But there is a bread that will satisfy your soul and Jesus says it is me. Jesus is saying, seek me, consume me. I am the bread that you need. You see, money says, if you wanna have life, you've gotta shape your life around getting me money. You've gotta deplete all the other resources in order to have me. You gotta have your body and your energy given to have me. You gotta sacrifice your family life for me so you work more and get more of me. It asks everything of you and yet it doesn't cut it. There's never enough. And it's fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But Jesus says, no, I am the bread of life and I deplete all my resources so that you might have me. And he says he will give himself to you. You don't deplete your resources, he depletes his. You don't have to exert your energy, he depletes his. You don't have to go broke for this. He has gone broke for you. You see, consumerum says, You've got to find life at a cost to yourself. But Jesus says, I will give you life at the cost of who? Himself. And this is why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we break the bread and we say, this is his body. He said, I have come so that I might be your satisfaction and your life, and I've done it at my cost. At my cost. The story of the Bible, though, is that the reason why Jesus had to come is because we had run for all the other breads, We had run to all other kinds of things, that we are cut off from God, that we've run away from him, that we had God in the garden and it was joyful and satisfying and secure and yet we said we want something else. We wanted more. And so we were running away. And so we've alienated ourselves from God, the one who is meant to satisfy your soul. And the restlessness in your soul will not be satisfied until you're reconnected to the Father again. And that's why Jesus says, I am the bread, because it is through tasting Him you taste the Father. But we are enslaved to our addiction to more, our hearts run after money. And so, how are we set free? How are we set free from an addiction to more? Your heart will only be set free to your addiction to more money and more stuff when you experience the kiss of the father and you realize he is better. Thomas Chalmers is an old Scottish theologian and pastor. He said, he's described it this way, that what the heart needs, if you have an addicted heart that's connected to your love for money, that you need the expulsive power. That means it kicks out the idol. your love of money the expulsive power of a new affection a new love a new love and how do we get that we've run away from god well we get it because of the gospel because god came running after us writer joseph bailey tells the story of his son tim tim was a rascal as a teenager He made life more and more miserable for everybody in the house. He rebelled constantly, and eventually, when he was 18, he left. He divorced himself and cut himself off from the rest of the family, all of his siblings, his mom and his dad. They barely heard from him unless he wanted something. He lived a completely wayward lifestyle, and his life became a classic prodigal mess. And one night, Joseph Bailey got a call from the police station around midnight saying this, Mr. Bailey, we have your son. He's been incarcerated for a DUI. So Joe Bailey drove to the police station, the one nearest to them where he thought they had called, and, and he went in there early or late at night, around one in the morning, he said, I'm here to bail out my son. They said, we, we don't have no record of your son being here. And so maybe, I, maybe it's the, the next police station over. So he drove to the, drives to the next town, same answer, the next town, same answer. This was strange. And so he finally drove to the inner city part of town that he knew his son was living in and to a shabby crack house. At this point, it was now about four in the morning. He opened the door to the house and he walked inside. There's no furniture. But over in the corner of the living room, he sees a, a shape or on a mattress on the floor at a sleeping bag. And he looks down and he sees his sleeping son. And his heart overflows with affection. And he leaned down, didn't say anything, just kisses his son. Then he walks out of the car and he goes home. Well, about six months later, his son, Tim, started to re-engage with the family. No explanation why at the time, just started to come back around. Started going to church with the family again. And slowly over the next couple of years, his life did a complete 180. And one day, sitting a couple years later, he, the father and the son were sitting around talking about all that had changed in Tim's life. And his father asked him, he's like, what changed, son? What ultimately brought you home? And the son said, dad, don't you know, it all turned around that night you came to my house. The whole DUI thing had been me and a friend pranking you. My friend had called pretending to be the police at the police station. And so when you showed up at my house, I actually wasn't really asleep. I was awake. And I was just pretending to be asleep because I, what I thought you were going to do was to come out and ream me out. But, Dad, instead of what you did is you kissed me. And it was that night that my heart began to loosen its grip on my anger and my addiction to the alcohol and to the drugs. And my heart began to long for home nothing will satisfy your hearts like the kiss of the Father. And the kiss of the Father... And how dearly he longs to come close to you and bring you to himself is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, God saw us rebelling and running from him and trying to fill our lives with these things. And so in his mercy, he sends his son who lives the life that we could not live and dies the death that we couldn't die. So he paid for our sin and he reconciles us in a relationship with the father so that we can come home. And now the father, what's he done. He's promised, as he said here in verse five, he's promised and said this, now that you've come home, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. That's called a covenant. And he says, I'll give you my spirit so that wherever you go, I will go with you. And God says, this is where your contentment comes from, knowing that I am with you, no matter in what circumstance you might find yourself, whether in wealth or in poverty, with a job or not a job. And so Psalm says in Psalm twenty-seven ten. He said this, even in loneliness, even in abandonment, when my father and mother have bailed on me, you don't. And the more your heart is settled into him, the more you'll grow in contentment. Now here's the question, do you believe that? Because for many of you, you knew that walking in as a fact. And yet every day, your obsession is not in him. It's with getting more. If, God, if having God, then nothing else is necessary unless he deems that we need it. Now, that's so good, isn't it? And actually, it, it puts into context all the gifts that God has given us. Did you know that? That if we have God and everything that he gives is a gift from him, then, he, then we can know, listen, if I, I have everything that he, I need and, and what he's given me right now, you know I need it. Because he gave it to me. And therefore, you know, I'm married right now. And so you know what I need? I need a spouse. If God takes my wife, will I be grieved? Yes. Will I be uh, devastated in many ways? Yes. But it's God saying to me, yes, you needed her then. But now I've given you this. Therefore, you have God's gifts. You have, they all come from his hand. It puts everything that we have in context we don't abandon the transcendent God and the infinite one who's loved us because he never abandons us. So satisfaction is found in him. It doesn't end there, though. Not only do we have satisfaction in him, we also have security in him. It says in verse 6 And therefore we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we have satisfaction. Now, also in Christ, we have security. Do you see where your confidence and security comes from? If you are in Christ Jesus and the Lord is your helper and he will uphold you and he will strengthen you and he will not forsake you and he will not leave you, it means he's at your side. Therefore, whatever you face, you face with him and he will protect you and he will keep you. Now, it asks the question, what can man do to me? And you wanna raise your hand and you go, "Um, I think he can do a lot. He can kill me. But with God, he can raise you up. Man can shame you, but with God, he will ultimately glorify you. Man can fire you from your job, but God will accept you. Man can impoverish you, but God will give you an inheritance, and you will rule and reign with him for all of eternity. These are the things that are yours. And this is not a fiction. And the reason we know it is not a fiction, because this is the very path that Jesus walked. Jesus was killed. They stripped him of what little possessions they had. he had. He was ashamed shamed and mocked. And yet the way it ended was what? He was raised to new life. And he ascends into heaven where he rules and reigns. The arc of Jesus' story, when you're connected to him, becomes the arc of your story. And therefore, when everything is falling apart, my trust, my, my trust is not in bank accounts and investments and insurance. I will not trust in the idols of this world, but I will put my hope and trust in him. But that's really hard, isn't it? Especially in a world of demands and mouths to feed and inflation and whatever else that we're supposed to be worried about, we're scared. And our idols, the way they work us, is they're scaremongers. They're like cable news channels and online news sites. They drive the clicks for our attention via what? Fear. And so what do we need is the prophetic voice of God coming to convince us that he is greater and that he is stronger and that he is bigger than all the things that we face in this world. He can protect us and he can keep us secure in the face of debt and loss of a job and medical bills I want to just sit here for a second force us to focus on the fact that God is bigger and better and stronger than the things you face. I love what Whittle said last week. He talked about how kids talk about, from Habakkuk 3, my dad's better than your dad. And what's the ultimate? My dad can beat up your dad. Well, you know what? The prophets of old, they constantly, they're like teenagers or like little kids. They're constantly saying to the, to the people around them, my God can beat up your God. That's what they said. My God can beat up your God. And so the prophets come and they say, my God can beat up your, your financial idolatry. This is what the pro- prophets are constantly doing. And so what do they do? When they come across idols, what do they do with idols? They mock them. Remember, this is what Elijah does. The 400 prophets of Baal, it's really hysterical. They count there. They go, he goes and mocks them. He says, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Baal's on vacation. He actually gets really graphic. He says, maybe he's relieving himself. Literally, this is in the Old Testament. They get really graphic with this. Your God is on the can. Maybe he can't hear you. That is some fun mocking. Psalm 115. The, the psalmist even mocks the idols of this world. He says, Your your idols have have they you've built mouths but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. Your idols are pretty dumb. In Isaiah 44, it says, You hired craftsmen to build your idols. Isaiah says, you make an idol out of wood, and half the wood you use to burn for a fire and to make dinner, and the other half you use to make an idol so you can bow down to it and ask it to deliver you. And he goes, that's stupid. He makes fun of their idols, and the best is Isaiah 40. It says this in verse 18 and 19, to whom then will I liken God, or what likeness can I compare with him? An idol, exclamation point. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for for its silver chains. And then he says, compare this now to Yahweh. You have your trinkets, but this is who Yahweh is. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And he's going, my God can beat up your God. That's what he's saying. Who can like you under the guard God, this God? He's enthroned over everything. He made it all, the, all the seas of the world is like a drop in the bucket. it's like a, just water in his hand. And then in Isaiah 40 tells the same thing, says that this same God of might and power and transcendence and creativity, he says this: He will tend you like a shepherd. And he will gather the lambs in his arms and he'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In other words, what's he saying? This, look how strong he is because it is only as you see how strong he is that you grow impressed with the fact that he holds you. If I try to hold you, it's not gonna really do a whole lot for you, is it? But if the God of the universe holds you, and so what does it look like, brothers and sisters, for you to mock your money idol like the prophets did and to compare them to your God? Maybe it looks like you take a $20, but never mind, nobody has any cash. You take a credit card out, and you look at it and you say, You're a useful gift, but you're a terrible God. You open up your bank statement, you look at the computer screen, you look at it, and you go, You're a useful gift, but you're a useless God. What's another way you could mock the idle money of money? Maybe just giving it away. Just mock money. Just, just. just to get your heart to practice relinquishing it and telling money that you don't don't own me. I can give you away any time. One pastor put it this way, a primary purpose in giving is not that God would get the money out of our pockets, but that he would get the idols out of our hearts. Or one more idea. What if you just took some time, and I know this is very bad timing for this week. What if you took a week of just fasting from spending? You actually ate the food that's in your house that you said, can we go a week without going to target pickup? I don't think you can. (laughs) But then you gotta cling. So yeah, you gotta relinquish, you gotta mock, but then you gotta cling to the one who protects your soul. And so what will you stuff yourself with over the next six weeks? The longing for money and the longing for stuff? What do you think will satisfy you? You see, this money thing applies to food and all the other stuff. The reality is a lot of you are gonna get to January and they go, oh my gosh, I've eaten so much and I can't drink fall of January because I drank a lot in January. And you're gonna look at your your credit card statements and you go, that's it, no more spending. Because for the next six weeks, you're just gonna bow to whatever idol you serve. So will it be that? Or will you actually eat with the bread of life? And either the one who says, I have died to make you mine and to hear the voice of the Father and to sit with him. So maybe here's my call. Yes, make mock your idol, but maybe what does it look like to cling for the next six weeks to your God? Maybe it looks like go on prayer walks without headphones. Walk and talk with your kids and your spouse. Build a fire and get lost and look at the embers. Fast from your phone or other media, from activity, from food or drink, Might I I suggest that? Jim mentioned this last week. He talked about not picking up your phone until you've actually read the word in the morning. I would actually suggest maybe you should do that at night as well. You know, it's such a mystery why we're so full of anxiety and we have such terrible sleep when we're sitting there every night scrolling, oh, what's wrong with every part of the world as we try to go to bed at night? I'm sure to have a good sleep now that perhaps maybe scrolling social media is not the best way to lull yourself to sleep at night. So let me give you a different suggestion. I'm going to just pop it up on the screen here. There's something called Leccio 365. This is something I use. Ha- they have morning devotions and, after- and evening devotionals. The morning ones get really weird. Don't listen to the morning ones. The evening ones are great. <laughs> the evening ones are fabulous. And all it does is it just prepares your heart to get quiet before the Lord as you go to bed. So maybe you do this down in the living room and then you put your phone away and you go upstairs and you read a book until you fall asleep, which will probably take you, like me, about three lines. (laughs) Because God knows that's what we need. So I may suggest this, that you go to bed and you cling to the bread of heaven as you go there. Let me close with this. At the end of World War II, there was all these kids that had lost parents and they'd spent years in deprivation. They'd wandered the streets of Europe in the war-torn cities. They hadn't had food. They'd starved. And they became little like hoarders. And, and, and when and provision started to begin to happen as the war came to a close and they brought these kids into orphanages, psych, psychologists went to these places to try to figure out how do we care for these kids and all the issues that they have coming out of this. And one of the things that there was the, one of the most significant issues is the kids could not sleep at night. They would wander around constantly. Now, part of that could be because they were so used to bombs going off, but a lot of it was just because they were so hungry for so many years that they would get up and they would pace looking for food. They were so so insecure in regards to where food might come from, they couldn't sleep. And so they came up with this very ingenious idea. What would satisfy them and make them feel secure enough so they could actually sleep in their bed at night? So one psychologist said this, what we, you need to do, and he told, went to the orphanage, he said, take a biscuit. Every kid goes to bed with a biscuit in their hand. They're not allowed to eat it before they go to bed. They're not allowed to eat it before they go to bed. But they go to that biscuit and it becomes their binky. So they can know that at any point I can wake up and the bread isn't gone. So it is for you. The bread who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that will secure your soul. Let's pray. Again, Lord, I ask that you would take the classic sermon, ah, life won't satisfy, go to God. Whether that's basketball or money or marriage, this is, this is the theme we go to. But Lord, we, are, we, we must admit that we're not just people who have got like some bad habits. We're a people who are addicted. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would come and convict us and transform us and fill us with the Spirit who would change our habits, literally change our brain chemistry, and ultimately, Lord, what we most need is for you to change our hearts. And that we would find that our hearts are satisfied only in you. And that, Lord, for those who are itching this morning, who are jonesing to make a purchase, and yet, Lord, they feel the anxiety rising up in their stomach. Heavenly Father, I pray that this, this, we would take this as a sign. Here's our sign that we need you that we need you, and would you give us yourself as you've promised to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.